This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. WKOW reports that Madison Gas and Electric, or MG&E, has received multiple reports from customers who are being targeted by phone scammers claiming to be employees of the utility. Scammers will often threaten immediate disconnection if MG&E customers do not send immediate payment with a prepaid debit card or wire transfer. The utility statement said this is not MG&E. Scammers can manipulate caller ID displays and show a local company's name or phone number when they call. Customers who are targeted or receive these calls are asked to contact the MG&E office at 608-252-7222 before cooperating with any potential scammers. A Cross Plains priest is facing disciplinary action from the Madison Diocese for political activity, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Rick Heilman was warned last year to halt his far right-wing political activity and has recently downplayed the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, advocating to donate money to those charged in the incident. The diocese Catholic Herald reported that Heilman has engaged in online social media and other activity involving statements on controversies stemming from electoral politics. Heilman made several far right-wing comments during the January 19th episode of the U.S. Grace Force podcast and ended the show with a plug for donations for the legal defense of January 6th insurrectionists. A $6 million renovation of Library Mall on UW-Madison's campus is in the works as reported by the Wisconsin State Journal. This transformation will include landscaping, shade trees, interactive water features, seating, and elements to honor the region's Ho-Chunk heritage. This revamped Library Mall is the last piece of the East Campus Mall project that is linked from Regent Street to Lake Mendota and has not been revisited in many years, said Aaron Williams, UW's Interim Director of Campus Planning and Landscape Architecture. The Library Mall has been in its current state since 1955 and will undergo the redevelopment as soon as the university is able to secure funding. Construction is expected to take around two years to complete. And now for today's COVID numbers, there were 1,742 new confirmed COVID-19 cases reported in the state yesterday, with an average of 1,767 new cases being reported each day over the past week. Additionally, 14.5% of all reported COVID tests have been positive over the last week. There were also three new deaths from the virus reported yesterday. While there is not currently a mask mandate here in Dane County, the local health department has issued an alert that the area is back to high levels of community spread and encourages everyone to mask up when indoors. And now on to today's top stories. Community violence is not a criminal problem so much as it is a broader public health problem. That's the view of Public Health, health Madison, Dane County, which is helping five local organizations get new programs off the ground to help reduce violence around the community. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. Public Health Madison and Dane County announced yesterday that they will be helping to fund programs at five local organizations to help local violence prevention programs. The funding is part of the Roadmap to Reducing Violence in Madison and Dane County, an initiative launched last year. Ariel Smith is the Director of Policy, Planning, and Evaluation for Public Health Madison and Dane County. She says that the initiative is a joint project between the full Public Health Department and the Violence Prevention Coalition, a subgroup of Public Health Madison and Dane County. So to dive a little bit deeper, we've been working with the Violence Prevention Coalition to identify priorities 
um, for the year that the coalition wanted to work on. And so related to that, we did some, some work in analyzing what public health has the capacity to do or arguably should be doing, what some other organizations are currently doing and felt comfortable continuing, and where were our gaps or needed uh, increases in programming or opportunities. Smith says that they found five main areas that Dane County could improve in their violence prevention response. Well, we found a lot of opportunities um, in terms of, you know, increased availability and access to data, um, working more with our children, youth, and families, focusing on some uh, violence intervention, supportive services, um, strengthening our neighborhoods and our ability to have strong communities, um, and also working on our coordination and collaboration efforts as all of the organizations that contribute or work on violence and violence prevention. The five groups receiving funding are Urban Triage, the Meadowwood Neighborhood Association, the Dane County District Attorney's Office, the Dane County Multi-Agency Center, or Dane Mac, and Operation Fresh Start. Operation Fresh Start is a Madison-based nonprofit organization aiming to empower young adults and give them the resources they need to succeed. Their portion of the funding will go towards two programs that will do exactly that. Greg Markle is the executive director of Operation Fresh Start. He says that the first program will help folks get their high school diplomas. Well, we know that a high school diploma is the number one requirement for employment in Dane County. And we also know that um, if you're employed and are able to satisfy your your basic needs through earning money, um, you're much less likely to engage in violence in the community. The second program aims to help people after they have their diplomas. Uh, The other program is a program we call CareerScape, which is uh, working with school districts and young people as they complete high school to have soft handoff and then um, transition into uh, career um, jobs and employment. So specifically those young people 18 to 21 who are not headed on to post-secondary education, uh, there's opportunities for um, engaging in career-oriented employment. Urban Triage will be using their funding to help support black families and youth in Dane County. That will come in the form of a new initiative to help younger folk either aging out of foster care or re-entering society after incarceration. There, they will learn job development skills, receive rental assistance and trauma recovery, and receive individual support. Some funding will go towards supporting victims of violence. The Dane County DA's office will receive funding to provide a Bluetooth panic button for victims of violent crimes who remain at risk. When the button is pressed, it will send GPS location data to 911. The Dane County Multi-Agency Center, or Dane Mac, is also looking to support victims of violence. Dane Mac is a nonprofit organization providing resources for survivors of sexual and gender-based violence. Rachel Sattler is the co-founder and co-president of Dane Mac. She says that they will use their funding to create an online portal to help connect survivors with local resources. So the multi-agency portal, or the map, will essentially be a platform where a survivor will be able to 
upload the details of their assaults so that they can be preserved securely and safely, and that will ensure that they don't have to repeat it every time they communicate with someone new about what happened. And then they will be able to learn about the resources that are available in the community, help get guidance on which resources might be right for them in that moment, and then actually connect through this portal to community resources that are partnering with us in this portal. The final organization receiving funding through this program is the Meadowwood Neighborhood Association, who will use their funds to provide resources such as housing and food to people in need. They will also help to refer people to health and social services in our community. In all, Public Health Madison in Dane County is awarding $300,000 in funds to the organizations to be available to them on August 1st. Ariel Smith says that they intend to award more funds to organizations for violence prevention in the coming years as part of their Roadmap to Reducing Violence initiative. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. After a weekend of epic storms, it looks like we may finally be seeing some tamer conditions outside. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has the forecast. Things are cooling down in Madison after a long stretch of extremely warm weather and lots of storms. Temperatures are currently sitting at right around 80 degrees. Humidity is sitting at right around 49% and winds are coming from the south at 5 miles per hour. We will likely be having clear skies for the next few days but there is a possibility for rain tomorrow evening. The UV index tomorrow is looking to possibly reach 8 here in Madison, which is in the high category. The index will be remaining in the high category for the rest of the week, so be sure to prepare your skin. Today's ragweed pollen reached the high category, which may be the reason those with allergies are experiencing puffy eyes and the need for tissues. Over the next two days, allergy counts will be lower than they have been, but will still be present. The sun is now rising at 5.43 a.m., giving you a little more time to keep your eyes closed before getting that take of sunlight through your blinds. The sun is now setting at 8.25 p.m. Lake Mendota's water temperature is sitting at 74 degrees. With a mix of calm, warm weather and nice water temperatures, it will be a great weekend to get on the water, but not without being safe. Yesterday was National Drowning Prevention Day, which is a great reminder to always wear a life jacket when out on the waters and other floating devices, such as pool floaties, do not make up for a life jacket. Tomorrow is looking to reach a high of 83 degrees, which may be one of the warmest days that we will see this week. Winds will be a little higher than what we saw today, and humidity much higher, looking to reach the 70 percentile. There is a possibility for rain in the evening, although it's only 40 percent. Here in Madison, with your WORT weather report, I'm producer Caitlin Davis.
It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last Monday, the issue of speedy bikers on shared-use paths came before the Madison Transportation Policy and Planning Board. WRT reporter Madeline Plattenberg has more. Shared-use paths are exactly what they sound like. Trails that support different recreational activities like walking, running, wheelchair use, inline skating, and biking. Last Monday, the issue of how best to share those paths came before the Transportation Policy and Planning Board. We know that there is a lot of Uh, There are a lot more people who are out walking, biking, walking dogs, um, you know, from starting to do that during the pandemic. And so there are always, you know, concerns over just etiquette on the path um, and behavior on the path. So we wanted to do a presentation to our policy board and just really have a thorough discussion, share some of what we're hearing and just get their input on, you know, where they're at and what they're thinking about this issue moving forward. At one point, you know, someone posted on Nextdoor and encouraged comments to be sent in. And so we did get quite a few from that. You know, occasionally people will comment. It usually will take, you know, kind of a bad incident for someone to really take that step if they're not, you know, they don't see something encouraging them to do it. That's Renee Calloway pedestrian bicycle administrator for the city of Madison. She's responsible for implementing a citywide pedestrian and bike safety program. And safety came up frequently at the meeting as Callaway and other city officials described comments the city has received about bikers and e-bike riders, both experienced and inexperienced riding too fast or passing too close to pedestrians. Callaway described pedestrians' demands for increased speed limits and speed humps, noting that some had complained shared-use paths are too dangerous to walk on during commute times, and that bikes have passed into oncoming traffic when they shouldn't have. Pedestrians at the meeting were mixed on how they preferred to know that someone is passing. Some said being yelled at from behind, such as, on your left, by a bicyclist, can be distressing, and that bikers have been too assertive in using bells or being vocal with what side of the path they are on. Ian Jamison is a resident of the Marquette neighborhood and has lived in Madison for the past 10 years. Jamison sold his car a year and a half ago and now commutes exclusively by walking and the use of e-bikes. He's one of several frequent path users I spoke with for this story who have submitted public comment on this issue. You know, my experience overall has been good. I think there's always like the brief moment in time where you happen to have a, a large group of people. And there's some touch and go as folks navigate around. Um, but from what I've seen or what I've experienced, people are smart um, and people for the most part give warning or um, accommodate other folks. I think some of the difficulty is, as you probably saw in the slide deck um, and some of the other comments, there's no clear marker as to what people actually want. Um, there are comments from folks that want you to call out when you're behind them. There are folks that don't want you to call out and scare them when you're behind them. Use the bell. Don't use the bell. Um, Pass fast. Pass slow. Um, So I think everybody has individual preferences. um, But again, we kind of have a good problem here. There are a lot of people trying to move about the city in carless ways. um, And I think it's fine if we like informally say this is what the etiquette should be, but in terms of restricting people or imposing speed limits, making lives harder for those people that are doing the right thing and um, kind of tacitly s- 
sending a vulnerable group of people back onto the streets where it could mean injuries or, or deaths, um, that seems like the wrong approach to me. Others commented that a bell ordinance should be put in place and that bikers need to be calling out when they are passing by. And if they don't, should receive a warning ticket. Still others said other sports with wheels like roller skating, e-skateboards, and mono wheels take up too much space on the path. More signage and water paths could better accommodate those using the paths to allow for more space to bike and walk side by side. Clarifying what is a motorbike to an electric bike can simplify what is and isn't allowed on the path. Jay Roberts is a longtime Eastside Madison resident and an enthusiastic biker. I am supportive of e-bikes in general, and I don't think that they cause undue problems on the bike path. And while e-bikes definitely give you the uh, the capacity to go fast, faster than a, a normal bike, so I, I, I won't say e-bikers are completely not to blame, um, but just from riding my both my regular bike and my e-bike through that corridor on a regular basis. I don't see the fast riders as necessarily being limited to the e-bikers. I I think uh, the the regular bike riders, people that are uh, riding quickly and in consider of others, uh, you know, there's just as many or more on regular bikes as there are on e-bikes. And I think for the most part, people get along great, you know, bikers and, and, uh, rollerbladers and joggers and, and, and people with baby carriages, you know, for the most part, it's not a problem. It's probably just, you know, at rush hour times, uh, you can get some. And again, my, my experience has been more of the, uh, the real serious bikers with, uh, with bike jerseys and, and very expensive bikes that are uh, on a mission to get a good workout in that are going fast. Those seems to me to be the ones that weave by people uh, more often or, or blow by. Maybe they're just more comfortable being in close proximity to, to other bikes. But those are the ones I, can, I tend to point my finger at more than, uh, more than the e-bikes. But overall, I'm fully supportive of the bike paths. Love that they have them. Glad they're expanding them. And I, you know, it takes cars off the road, uh, gets carbon dioxide out of the air, and gets people uh, exercising. I think they're a great thing. Shared-use pathways were not signed for high speeds. If speed limits were put into place on shared-use paths, 20 miles per hour would be the default speed limit, as a bike path is considered a highway, and a bicycle is a vehicle. This could mean people being ticketed and loss of points on a person's driver's license for bike-related speeding violations. Instead of an official path speed limit, a potential safe speed ordinance could be put into place, with language around an upper limit for safety. Jeff Carroll is a retired DNR employee and has lived in Madison since 1980 and has lived right along the bike path for the last four years. I'm not against e-bikes, but I'm concerned about the, the, the speed at which some of them are going uh, on the southwest path. You know, they're going over 20 miles per hour. Some of them are at 20 if it's a class two e-bike. And it, it just seems too fast for the conditions. But if we had speed limit signs the same size as what you find when you're driving your car, to me, that's real noticeable. And hopefully it would educate these folks that they need to pay attention to their speed. An example of a community that has implemented safety measures on shared use paths is in Fort Collins, Colorado. Trails have a courtesy speed limit of 15 miles per hour, but are not enforced and e-bikes are allowed on paved trails while e-scooters are not. 
Andy Reichel is originally from Kenosha and has been living in Madison for about seven years. Reichel commutes to work by bike from the west side and uses the paths for commuting and recreational use. And I think for the most part, I think as they are, the paths are pretty great. I think there's always, you know, room for more of them um, as someone who tries to treat biking as their primary mode of transportation. Like overall, I think that, you know, I've had testy interactions, shall we say, on occasion on the path, but nothing, you know, nothing dangerous, nothing like particularly like scary or mean-spirited. I think it's just a lot of different people using them for a lot of different things. And it's more or less a good thing that people are using them for different things. You know, limiting use of the path could potentially have implications on members of the community who, you know, might be, have actual trouble getting over something like a speed bump uh, on a regular bike or might be, you know, using the path on an electric bike on occasion and are, you know, more nervous about riding on the road, things like that. Projects and events from past years include pandemic-oriented Share the Path signs at most paths in 2020, pop-up events in 2021 that included simple yard signs with basic etiquette messages, moving signs to different locations during the summer, and staff handing out bells along paths. Those advocacy efforts continued this summer during Madison Bike Week. Callaway tells WORT that they're beginning to tackle this issue. Those fixes include increased signage, education for bikers on how to share the paths, and possible expansion of some paths in congested areas. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Madeline Plattenberg. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Election season is here, and over the next several weeks, we will be bringing you interviews with candidates running for governor of Wisconsin. Joan Ellis Beglinger is an independent running for the office and will be on the November ballot. She spoke with WRT producer Nate Weggehout last week about COVID, running as an independent, and her campaign. This is a shortened interview of their version of their full interview. You can listen to that full interview online at wortfm.org. I'm joined now by Joan Ellis Beglinger, an independent candidate for governor here in Wisconsin. Uh, Joan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Well, and thanks for having me, Nate. And so just to get started here, Joan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who who are you? Well, I'm not a politician. (laughs) I am a retired hospital administrator and registered nurse. I... Uh, practiced critical care nursing for 10 years. I was a clinical nurse specialist at St. Luke's in Milwaukee. I practiced there in the clinical field for 10 years. I was the vice president of patient care and chief nursing officer for nearly 30 years at both what is now Aurora Sinai in Milwaukee and St. Mary's Hospital in Madison for 22 years. Uh, I managed a $200 million budget in that role, and we produced some of the best outcomes in the country. As far as personally, I have lived in Wisconsin all my life. I grew up in New Berlin in Waukesha County, 
and got my bachelor's degree in nursing from UW-Milwaukee, paid for it working at Sears Brookville Square. I have a master's in nursing from Marquette University and an executive MBA from UW-Madison. And so now, sort of going from there, why did you decide to run for governor? Why are you running? And then sort of along those lines, why are you running as an independent here? Yes. Well, I had no aspirations whatsoever to be the governor. I was enjoying a very blissful retirement. But in recent years, I've become increasingly concerned that we are losing our freedom. And there is nothing more important to me than living free. So there are many ways we're experiencing that, and we can certainly talk about them if you would like. But I have chosen to take the steep uphill climb as an independent because I think both of our major political parties have corrupted themselves with money and power, and they do very little that matters to most of the people. So I've taken that route And I decided to run for governor because we need to reclaim our government and our political processes from the stranglehold that these parties have on them. And uh, independent was the only way for me to go since uh, they are so corrupt. So that is what brought me in. Um, I'm highly qualified since the governor is the chief executive of our state and we have a $40 billion budget to manage and 30,000 employees. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, in my nearly 30 years of executive leadership experience, I managed a $200 million budget. I acquired the skills and the experience and the credentials needed uh, to manage a big bureaucracy. And most importantly, I have a very long and very public and very measurable track record of producing some of the best results in the country. And now, so looking at Wisconsin, what are some of the top issues that you see facing the state right now? What are some of the things that you would like to work on as governor? Well, um, thank you for asking. And I have my initial priorities uh, posted on my website, if your audience cares to uh, take a look at them. Uh, But I would say the top four are restoring our economic prosperity, uh, reversing the rising crime that we're experiencing, focusing on having our schools be much more effective than they are, and um, safeguarding our election integrity, which, as you know, is a highly controversial and uh, important topic of discussion today. On that page on your website, you say uh, the government lied about danger the virus poses deliberately withholding information that is vital to understanding the big picture. Uh, I sort of say, can you sort of walk me through that a little bit? Sure, sure. Very Soon, well, let me start at the beginning. When we first experienced COVID, it was a new virus. So it was very reasonable that we were on high alert and we had no idea if this virus was going to sweep through our country and take millions of us out with it. But months into our experience with the virus, it became very clear that most of us had nothing to fear seriously from the virus if we were healthy, and there was a subset of people um, that had a great deal 
to be concerned about. They were very vulnerable. Um, they might be very sick, and they might even die from the illness. And as we all know at this point, those are the elderly, uh, the chronically ill, and obesity is a particularly high-risk factor. So once we knew that most of us not, were not at risk, uh, the steps that the government took to control people and mandate masks and try to take the route of mandating vaccines and those kind of things were totally inappropriate. So when I say the government withheld information, what I mean is um, they were not forthcoming about where the risk really lied. They did not talk at all about natural immunity, which is absolutely a secondary benefit for those of us who had COVID and experienced it like we do the flu. Um, the vaccine, I'm not at all anti the vaccine. What I am strongly in favor of is that we as individuals have all of the information that is available and then we make our decision by evaluating our personal health risk and what we believe the benefits of the vaccine to be. So the vaccine is absolutely a new technology, the mRNA technology. It has been studied for years, but this is the first human application. And so the bottom line is we have no idea other than the two years of experience we have, what the long-term impact is going to be. And I think that is underscored by the fact that we have seen it go from here's a vaccine that's going to be great, now we need a booster, to maybe we need another booster, to maybe another booster. And my own view is that um, we're being primed right now uh, related to the November election to get all back into the fear mode and lock down and find all sorts of reasons uh, that we're going to have to once again manipulate um, the election scenario. But back to the um, COVID, another point, and I make this uh, in my essay on my website, we do know with certainty that healthy children have a minuscule serious risk from COVID. And in my mind, and this is just my personal opinion as a nurse with a master's degree, um, I think it is unethical to be vaccinating children with a vaccine whose long-term effects are unknown in an environment where their risk is so extremely low. So these are my opinions, and um, I think the government has used the virus as a way of manipulating and controlling and shutting down the economy, mandating mask wearing. Um, the masks that we were all told to wear for the first year or more are masks that will keep out a virus that is three microns in size, and the COVID virus is one micron in size, and most of what people were wearing had absolutely no effect. And as we look around even today and see people outside wearing masks, all sorts of masks, they've got children in masks, we can see clearly people are frightened. 
they don't really even know what they're frightened of. And I think it is such a disservice to the people not to provide them the full and factual information and leave them to make the decisions that are right for them. And sticking with that for just one more moment here, what would you say to people who point to the uh, over 13,000 people who have died of COVID here in Wisconsin? Uh, What would you say to the people who point to that and say, uh, well, isn't that sort of what makes the COVID so dangerous? Well, that's an, I'm so glad you asked me that, Nate, because that is another element of the dishonesty. We don't know who's died from COVID. We know who's died with COVID. And so every person who was hospitalized and tested for any reason and tested positive for COVID is counted as a COVID death. Um, I have a niece who worked on a COVID unit in the Wausau area, and she told me about a patient admitted with a major stroke, and they were testing everyone back then. The person died of their stroke, but the person happened to test positive for COVID. So we don't really know because of how the data was reported and collected who actually died from COVID and who died with COVID. So Um, And don't misunderstand me, there's no question in my mind that people died from COVID. And certainly people who are chronically ill and very elderly. Now, my 99-year-old mother-in-law had COVID and she sailed through it. So um, these risk factors are not uh, absolutes. But there is no question the virus ravaged some people who were at risk. But again... Um, So I'm not minimizing that, but the way the entire population was treated was unconscionable, and it was a political maneuver, in my opinion. Well, Joan, do you have just any final thoughts of anything that you'd like to share with me here? Well, I would like to thank you very much for having me. I would like to ask your listeners to please go to beglingerforgovernor.com. That's B-E-G-L-I-N-G-E-R for governor.com. I have media interviews posted. I have a lot of views, and I would ask them to sign up for my email list because I send out a Beglinger Blast every Sunday, and I would ask them to evaluate me closely and follow me as we go, and I will be working hard to earn their vote. I've been talking with Joan Ellis Beglinger, an independent candidate for governor here in Wisconsin. Uh, She will not appear on the August 9th primary ballot and will appear on the ballot on November 8th for the election. Joan, thank you again so much for coming on and talking with me today. And thank you, Nate. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. This week on an archival edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg breaks down one of the most controversial birds in the avian world, the house wren. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Training Supervisor for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about house wrens. Now, 
I would say that there aren't a lot of people out there like me who love house wrens. Uh, there are a lot of people that don't like house wrens, but I think that they are a fascinating species that are worth talking about here on our Wart Radio segment. House wrens are very common here in the state of Wisconsin. They are a very small songbird that is tiny and brown and fast and very, very vocal. Um, if you've never seen a house wren, I would totally understand, even though they're common in relatively urban areas on some edge woodland areas especially, uh, we don't really see them much because they're just so quick and so fast. Honestly, you're going to hear them before you'd probably see them because of how tiny they are. Now, why are there complex opinions about house wrens? Well, some people like them because they're just really cool. They're one of those tiny bird species that um, it forages very actively in vegetation. Uh, usually they love to eat spiders. So if you don't like spiders in your house, but you have wrens around in your area, that's one of their favorite foods. Um, they're just very bouncy, very bright, very almost hyperactive little songbirds. And uh, and so I think they're actually really great in, in our environment. People that don't like house wrens are, you know, might be folks that are trying to recruit bluebirds, for example, to bluebird trails or nest cavities, because they are definitely one of those species that can easily take over a nest box of another species that you might be trying to help for conservation efforts. So it's kind of the bane of people's existence if they've got uh, house wrens that have decided to nest in their bluebird box. But also, wrens can be very territorial and honestly pretty aggressive to other species. So, you know, you might have uh, some species of birds nesting in your backyard and all of a sudden then you've got house wrens that have moved in and they will you know chase off other birds sometimes they've even been known to actually attack other birds eggs and uh, even kind of destroy nests but mostly you know inadvertently destroying eggs uh, especially if there's even a rival wren in the area so you know they're territorial not only with other birds but also among themselves so house wrens are, are just they're cool but they're also just uh, gosh tiny little angry birds <laughs> if you have uh, multiple wrens in an area males are usually the ones that are going to be highly territorial you know he's picking the cavity for a potential nest site and hoping to recruit a female but it's actually not even one female Female. You know, these gonna, they're going to be singing uh, just an incredible um, array of beautiful sounds from house wrens. Just lots of sounds. You definitely look it up if you haven't got the chance. My sounds here on this radio are not exactly great. Um, and that's not accurate, but it's very complex. There's a lot of up and down pitches. It's a very lengthy song. Um, and they're just going to sit and sing and sing and sing until they get a female. Now, once they get a female and they do end up uh, mating and hopefully, you know, that all goes well, there's actually a, a good percentage of, of males that will actually take on a second mate. So, you know, up to about 15 or 20 percent of male house wrens will decide, oh, OK, I'm going to have a, a second female or another family of babies. And so it, it's definitely like they're going to they're going to be foraging like crazy. They're still going to be bringing food back and everything. But, you know, the females are going to end up doing a lot of that work uh, after the, the male has mated. So uh, it's mostly you know just kind of it, and this is common with a lot of other songbirds it's it's a a different kind of breeding style just being able to have as many babies as possible and they tend to have quite a few eggs in their nests so um so maybe it's only one nest or maybe it's more than one nest that they decide to breed for throughout the year um but you can have uh you know lots of tiny little wrens right now we have uh three of them at our wildlife center but we actually admitted a whole group of seven of them together from one nest cavity so 
They are kind of neat in the fact that because they're cavity nesters, usually again in a box or even if they find a tree hollow, you can try wild fostering this species. So taking a a wren and putting it in a box of a different bird uh, is one that they're not even familiar with and uh, allowing the parents to take care of them. So we definitely did that with about half of the wrens we got from one one admission. And the others are doing very well here in rehabilitation. But because they are so small, they are very uh, hard to handle. They're, they're smaller than the palm of your hand. Like they're just itty bitty little friends, um, you know, in terms of their weight, you know, it might only be like 10 to 11 grams. So it's almost the size of a chickadee. So what we've done is we we, we move them outside with itty bitty tiny mealworms for them to eat. Uh, we're hand feeding them every half an hour uh, until they're able to be flighted and they can fledge and hopefully successfully be able to find food on their own. So what we do for the wrens is make sure that they've got plenty of access to different types of foods that they might find naturally out in the wild. But we also include things like cocoon capers and if we can find you know any sort of like spider egg sac that's really good for them because spiders are one of their favorite foods. And then lots of uh, natural enrichment for them to kind of in because that dense foliage is where they're mostly foraging out in the wild. So on average, I would say you probably have a group of wrens, maybe five to seven babies, sometimes more than that. Um, and uh, usually after they have actually uh, hatched from their eggs, it's about only 12 to 18 days after hatching that they will be starting to leave the nest. So, you know, um, ours are getting really close. They're very uh, active, but they're starting to refuse food already and starting to find food on their own in their cages, which is really, really neat. So, so just really cool species um, definitely here all the time in Wisconsin but common all throughout the United States um, but one that just you know kind of people kind of pass by because they don't really see them they're just fast and they're loud but I think they are awesome so I will end by sharing a little bit of a sound clip of uh, what these wrens our baby wrens uh, sound like in rehabilitation because I think how fun is that this is us feeding them uh, so thanks for listening and uh, this has been your wildlife weekly It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. He may not be Indiana Jones, but host Rourke Habegger searches through our galactic neighborhood for radio relics and shares what they can tell us about the universe on this week's archival edition of Radio Astronomy. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Rourke, and today we'll explore the radio relics of galaxy clusters. Most people know what a galaxy is, and you may even know that our galaxy, the Milky Way, is gravitationally bound to another galaxy, the Andromeda Galaxy. There are also a bunch of smaller galaxies and star clusters nearby our two galaxies. All these objects together are the local group where we live. However, there are many more groupings scattered across the night sky. The biggest groupings are called galaxy clusters. These larger volumes of space contain hundreds and thousands of galaxies. Clusters are usually on the scale of megaparsecs in radius. That is 3 million light years or 30 times the size of our own Milky Way galaxy. These monster conglomerations of mass are an important tool for astronomers. For example, they are so massive that they bend light. If there is a galaxy behind a galaxy cluster, that background galaxy's light gets bent and can be refocused directly at us. 
This gravitational lensing is predicted by Einstein's general relativity and can produce Einstein rings. Einstein rings form when a galaxy cluster bends a background galaxy's light such that the background galaxy appears to us like a ring around the cluster. Galaxy clusters aren't just cool because they allow us to see things behind them. They are also a playground of interesting physics. For one, galaxy clusters are a primary piece of evidence for the existence of dark matter. Specifically, to create those Einstein rings I just mentioned, the luminous mass contained in the cluster is not enough to bend light. So we need some mass in the cluster that is not luminous. Additionally, specific examples like the bullet cluster only exist if there is a bunch of mass which does not interact with light. In addition to helping us understand how dark matter works, galaxy clusters are also a really hot place. Between the galaxies, there is a tenuous plasma called the intracluster medium. This plasma emits x-rays, like the ones used to look at your teeth. This plasma is the fluid between all the galaxies. As the galaxies in the cluster move toward one another, due to gravity, they push the plasma around. Additionally, the intracluster medium can create a drag force, which changes the shape of galaxies moving through it. Recently, an international collaboration of astrophysicists used the Meerkat Array in South Africa to study galaxy cluster Abel 3667. Specifically, they looked at the radio relics in the cluster. Radio relics are most commonly shocks in the intracluster medium, which formed as a result of multiple galaxy clusters merging together. By looking at Abel 3667, the team found a lot of interesting results. First, they found one shock front which extends for 6.5 million light years, or 65 times the size of the Milky Way. Additionally, there is a significant polarization in the light seen from that shock front. Polarized light in astronomy is characteristic of a magnetic field at the emission location. This supports the idea that magnetic fields play an important role in the dynamics of the intracluster medium. Secondly, the team showed the presence of magnetic draping in a separate radio relic from the big shock. This occurs when magnetic field reacts slower than the thermal plasma. Instead, the magnetic field gets draped across whatever plasma pushes against it. They performed a lot of measurements of spectral index, rotation measure, polarization, etc. These specific measurements mean a lot for astronomers, but the main takeaway is that previous thoughts on these radio relics in Abel 3667 were confirmed. The relics had previously been observed with a lower resolution, but even with those blurry pictures, astronomers were able to identify where shocks and strong magnetic fields should be. By taking a higher resolution, more detailed picture with the Meerkat array, the international team confirmed many of our suspicions about the radio relics in Abel 3667. Thanks for tuning into Radio Astronomy and listening to me ramble about radio relics. I hope you have a stellar week.
And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was, for the final time, Madeline Plattenberg. Thank you for everything, Madeline. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and the Radio Astronomy crew. Super Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish Language News with Enrico Patio. Good night.